If you have your Bibles with you, we're in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and we started out with the 38th verse where it talked about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But then he continues on in verse 43, and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You know, earlier, Jesus has told his disciples that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And now it seems like he even raises the bar even higher, doesn't it? Now he says, be ye perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? He's calling you to be perfect like God is perfect. Is that even possible? Well, yeah, because God never tells us to do something that we cannot do. Now, this passage that we read in its entirety has been misunderstood uh, in many, many, uh, many times. I just want to go through it with you today. Uh, the eye for an eye uh, reference is called the law of retaliation nowadays. But it originally was given to be a law of compensation, not retaliation. Uh, in, in Exodus, the 21st chapter, the 23rd verse, uh, that's where we first see it. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And this is uh, reiterated in Leviticus, the 24th chapter, and in Deuteronomy, the 19th chapter. You see, this law was designed so that judges would make sure that the punishment fit the crime, not too much and not too little, but that it would fit the offense that had been committed, that the compensation would be right for the offense that had occurred. Uh, in the days of Jesus, the law of retaliation had become a justification for personal revenge. And that's the stance that the Pharisees took on it. The people had heard this misinterpretation from their leaders. But now then, remember, Jesus has said that our righteousness is supposed to exceed their righteousness. So what did Jesus mean then whenever he said, do not resist an evil person? Well, you need to take this in the context of the whole Bible. You can't just take just one line. You've got to see it in context. We have to see this in context with the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. 
that we need to see it in the context of the Bible as a whole. Back in Proverbs 28, the fourth chapter, it says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law resist them. And then in James 4, 7, we're told, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then Jesus says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left let his house be broken into. So, obvious, obviously, Jesus thinks that at times it's okay to resist evil people. And so, uh, why does he say not to resist an evil person? Like I said, we take it in context. What Jesus meant about not resisting an evil person has nothing to do with resisting evil in general. We should resist evil and should desire to see evil persons brought to justice. We should report crimes and not allow wicked folks to get away with wicked deeds. But what Jesus means in this passage that we read today is that when we are personally wronged by someone in everyday encounters, we should not strike back at them with vengeance. It doesn't mean that we should let people get away with criminal behavior. The illustrations the Lord gives don't deal with people who are breaking the law. If someone breaks the law, uh, we do our society a disservice by letting it go unreported. So, uh, First of all, I want to break this down in the striking on the cheek. This does not refer to governments being pacifistic. Romans 13, 4, speaking of rulers, says, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. You see, folks, nations are expected to defend their people. Neither Jesus nor the apostles told the soldiers they encountered that they needed to leave their profession. And so those of you who are veterans today, continue to be proud that you serve your country. And don't think that this passage is saying that you did the wrong thing by serving and protecting the rest of us. You did not. A country that does not defend itself even to the point of war is a country that does the greatest disservice to its citizens, for that's a part of its purpose. Furthermore, the law of retaliation was given to judges to properly enforce justice on those who broke the law. Uh, this doesn't refer to a person being weak in regard to the defense of oneself and one's family. In Barnes' notes, he says, uh, Christ did not intend to teach that we are to see our families murdered or murdered ourselves, rather to make resistance. Luke twenty-two thirty-six depicts Jesus telling his disciples to obtain a sword. They would be thrust out in the world to share the gospel, and they needed the necessary means of living, and one of those was a means to defend themselves against wicked people. Thus, owning a sword was for self-defense. This wasn't to uh, encourage violence. We should do all we can to thwart violence. 
but a robber on the road trying to steal your goods is not someone in the mood for diplomacy, nor is a mugger or a rapist. To attempt to defend one's family, uh, to not attempt to defend one's family from an intruder is to fail them. So what does this slapping on the cheek mean? Remember, we're supposed to take it in context. You see, being slapped on the cheek was to be taken the context of personal relations. And the slap, if you were backhanded, a backhand would be uh, like this. And to be backhanded on the right cheek would be the greatest insult that could publicly be given to someone. Rather than referring to being physically beat up, the Jews would have known that this was referring to being insulted. This means that if someone insults you, don't respond in kind. Uh, in other places in Scripture, says, don't return railing for railing or bad words for bad words. You know, it says, in other words, turn the other cheek before blasting them back. Ron Rhodes puts it this way. The question of rendering insult for insult, however, is a far cry from defending oneself against a mugger or a rapist or someone criminally attacking you or a loved one in some way. The natural thing would be to want to fight insult with insult, wouldn't it? But Jesus tells us to do something different. You see, the usual purpose of an insult like this is to either start a fight, which pulls you down to their level, which is one of the things that they would love to do, or to humiliate you. Either you're going to fight back, and the moment that you fight back, you see, that's when people start looking, isn't it? They usually don't see that first blow, do they? But they see you responding. And so guess who gets in trouble and who looks bad when you handle things like that? It's the person that strikes back that usually winds up getting in trouble. So, But you see, when you turn the other cheek, all of a sudden, the entire dynamic changes. All of a sudden, you're in command of the situation. And they have some decision-making to do, don't they? You've shown them no fear, and they haven't humiliated you, and they've had time to think. And by this time, everybody is watching. Uh, I know a, a lady whose uh, teenage daughter uh, all of a sudden started getting in trouble for fighting in school. And she asked her, what's going on? I said, well, there's this girl. She keeps hitting me, and I hit her back. And so what her mom told her to do, the next time that she hits you, you just grab where she hits you, and instead of, instead of hitting her back, you just grab your arm where she hits you, and you stagger back, and you say, why did you hit me? And guess what? All of a sudden, she quit getting in trouble. And the other girl, see, well, the thing is, whenever the, the, the first girl slugged the other one, nobody saw that. All they saw was this woman's daughter popping her back. And so whenever she did that, it called everybody's attention to what was going on, and it stopped. And it worked very well. So uh, anyway, so there's some truth to this. Now then, there's another, uh, uh, Jesus goes on, he talks about the tunic and the cloak. And the thing is, it says that if someone is about to sue you, 
or someone's going to sue you, or if they're getting ready to sue you. It doesn't mean if you've already got a lawsuit going on. He's saying if you have somebody that's getting ready to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat also. And again, you see, this is cutting things off and changing things where all of a sudden, instead, it's not a matter of giving in. Obviously, this person has a complaint. Remember, uh, earlier we were looking about if your brother has all against you, go and get things right with them. Well, this takes that in consideration because what you do, instead of looking bad when you get sued, you give them more than what they, you knew they were going to be going after, and all of a sudden you're in control again, and you're the good guy instead of the bad guy. Do you see that? There's a difference. And so then uh, you go on. Uh, he's, he says that his followers should be of a different caliber. They may have been forced. Oh, 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 again, the second mile. And this is the one I just love to think about. I just muse about this all the time. You know, uh, being forced to go one mile was something that was required of Jews uh, to do for Roman soldiers. They were uh, supposed to, they could, the Roman soldiers could force a civilian to carry their gear one mile. No further. That was the law. And, uh, the Jews hated this because they hated their oppressors. But Jesus had a different take on this practice. He said that if you're told to carry it one mile, carry it two. Now, why would Jesus do this? Jesus was saying that his followers were supposed to be on a higher plane. They may have been forced to carry the bags, required to carry the bags for a Roman uh, soldier one mile, but then they should show kindness to the Roman, the poor guy that couldn't carry his own bag, and carry it another mile. <laughs> Going one mile showed no love towards their oppressors because they were forced to do it. They were required to do it by the law. But turning around and willingly doing it for a second mile showed a genuine act of kindness. Nobody did that. And I'm sure it would be a shocker to a Roman soldier whenever that mile marker came up and the Jew just kept on walking with their stuff. He's got my stuff. You know, you can, you know, or at the very beginning says, carry my bag, carry my stuff one mile. And yet the guy picks it up and says, I want to carry it too. All of a sudden you see the Roman soldier's not in control anymore. All of a sudden, the one who was uh, supposed to be subjugated is the one who is blessing the one who was uh, supposed to be oppressed. That can do a number on your head, can it? And you can imagine, you know, after a while, when if a guy just kept on carrying you, know, sometimes the Roman soldier might want to take a coffee break or something. And if the guy kept on going, he might get where he didn't want to ask that guy to carry his bag anymore, right? You see there's the difference that it makes. And so this is just it. It puts us in a different spot altogether. All of a sudden, we're not a victim. All of a sudden, we're the one who's in control of the situation. Well, and he talks about showing generosity. Uh, he talks about giving when asked. Are we supposed to just give to everyone who asks? Are we supposed to loan money to anybody who asks us for a loan? Being a giving person is a sure sign of our being a part of the body of Christ. 
If we're with Christ, then we should be givers. If we see a need in another person, then to turn them away is unrighteous behavior. The other day, I was waiting in line to pick up some fast food, and I saw a man who looked just awful go to the garbage can at Carl's Jr. and start digging through the garbage till he found a bottle, a half a bottle of soda. And he looked at it like he just found a treasure. And he was digging through, looking to see if somebody left a half a hamburger or something. He couldn't find anything like that. So he took his treasure and he went around the corner. Well, I couldn't let that go. And so I tried to find him. Uh, he had gone on. He, he was about oh, 100 yards away when I finally got my stuff. But I, I, he'd gone around the building, actually. I came back by and I saw him when I, I, I stopped by. And uh, I had enough money there to buy him a good meal. And I tried to get his attention, and uh, he wouldn't even look my way. And uh, so I, I tried again, and finally he looked my way. And I said, I said, sir, it looks like you could use a, a meal. And, and he just walked over and took it and just walked away. Just maybe you've had an animal, a dog maybe, that was hurt, and had been hurt time and time again. And how they'll, they'll be hungry, and they'll want something to eat, and they'll come and get what you have, and then they just turn away. Well, this man behaved just like an animal. He needed what I offered, but he was afraid he was going to get hurt. I think he may have even been deaf. I don't even think he could really hear because I called out to him earlier and he hadn't even looked back. But uh, anyway, whenever you see something like that, if you have the heart of Christ within you, you're going to do something about it. And if you're not, then don't call yourself his. Anyway. He was, uh, by giving is a sign of our being and a, a part of the body of Christ. But do we give to everyone? Jesus, well, St. Augustine said, give to everyone who asks, but not everything they ask. Sometimes people ask for wrong things. They ask for wrong reasons. Uh, sometimes giving them what they want isn't going to help them at all. And so you have to use wisdom in your giving. And so uh, I just want you to be aware of that. Legitimate needs, such as fam family in need, groceries, uh, hurricane relief, things like that, should be met and are expected to be met by Jesus' followers. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we should go bankrupt by trying to support every charitable organization out there, but rather it does mean to the best of our ability, when we encounter personally a need, we need to help others that come to us and are presented to us in need. Give more than you have to give. I think that's the one thing that would underline everything that Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture. Don't just meet the obligation. Live a second-mile life. It's in second-mile living that you truly begin to worship with your very life and say, Lord, you are worth me living the life that I know you have called me to live. You see, the first mile is crowded, but the second mile isn't busy at all. The first mile is congested, but the second mile isn't very well traveled, people. The first mile is bumper to bumper, but the second mile is smooth sailing. The first mile is gridlocked, 
But you know, folks, the second mile is almost deserted. You're not going to find many people there. Christianity is a second mile religion. If we call ourselves by our Lord's name, then we need to understand that we are required to live in the second mile. To love your neighbor is the first mile. To love your enemy is the second mile. To bless those who bless you, that's the first mile. To bless those who curse you, that's the second mile. To do good to those who do good to you, that's the first mile. To to do good to those who hate you, that's the second mile. Praying for those who pray for you, that's the first mile. Praying for those who despitefully use you, that's the second mile. You see, the Pharisees lived in the first mile. Christians live in the second mile. Jesus lived in the second mile. He did this in two ways, in his life and in his teaching. Look at his prayer life. Remember uh, him praying until drops of blood ran down his face? We only pray to our knees hurt or, or people aren't, aren't looking anymore. Jesus struggled with uh, Satan after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and being tempted. And he gave us examples on how to accept adversities. He did this in his giving, didn't he? Of his whole life to devote to a life devoted to his father's business and then dying on the cross for undeserving people such as you and I. No complaints when he was spit upon or the soldiers gambled for his clothes or yanked his beard or gambled for his clothes. I want to ask you, are you committed to living in the second mile? Are you willing to commit your life to God and to leap all those boundaries that you know are there in order to follow him? Are you willing to take that extra step to call yourself a second mile Christian. The first mile is that which is required of us. It's the mile that's mandated for us. And the world expects us to live in the first mile. It's what the world does. They look out for each other. But to live in a world, but let's face it, we live in a world where there are a lot of people that don't even make it to the first mile marker. That is, they don't even do what's required of them. They don't do what's required of them in their home. They don't do what's required of them in their church or wherever they might be. The first mile is vitally important. It's what makes us function. It's what's required of us as believers. But the second mile is where you get to begin to live as a believer. And if you haven't gone there I want to tell you, it is a great place to live. It's not the same, but it's a great place to live. The second mile is the witnessing mile. The second mile is the sacrificial mile. The second mile is the commitment mile. The second mile is the breakthrough mile. The second mile is the seed sowing mile. The second mile is your destiny mile. It's when you start living in the second mile that you start finding out who it is that God really created you to be. The second mile is your deliverance mile. 
It's when you wind up being set free from those things that have been binding you in the past. The second mile is the healing mile. The second mile is your set free mile. I am truly convinced that many more souls would be saved if we who bear the name of Christ lived our lives in the second mile. Let's face it, Jesus went the second mile for every one of us. What does it mean living in the second mile? It means to rise above the the instinctive reaction or desire to strike back, to get even, or to settle the score, to meet uh, evil with and, and and to meet evil with good. It's to put aside the way that we would normally do things and do things the way our Lord wanted to do. It means to swallow pride and self-interest. It means to be slow to anger and quick to forgive. It means to live by grace in the face of the unfair. Now, let's face it, Jesus went much further than the second mile for you, didn't he? He went as far as anyone could ever go. He said, greater love has not one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he went and he did it for each one of you. The Lord Jesus walked the second mile. Yes, brothers and sisters, he went the first mile. He did what was required of him. He left heaven. He clothed himself in human flesh. He walked among us and yet was not contaminated by our sin. He was obedient to the Father. But then he went the second mile, all the way to the cross to pay the price for our sin. He could have called legions of angels to set himself free. But instead, he went the second mile to die for you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow before you at this time, we hear you calling us to live in the second mile. Forgive us, we pray, whenever we've been content to just do what was expected of us or what was required of us instead of moving on into that realm where you live. Oh, Lord, we do pray that as we look to you, you'll lift us up and help us stand on higher ground. In Jesus' name, amen.